0: Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership, plus get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dad Podcast. I want to uh, thank you guys for tuning in again this week. Um, did you know that October is ADHD Awareness Month? Uh, because it is, or was by the time you listened to this. Uh, In light of that, I wanted to share an interview that I did the other day uh, with Dr. John Cruz. He is a neuroscientist, psychiatrist, and author of the book, Recognizing Adult ADHD, What Donald Trump Can Teach Us About Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, He has 25 years of psychiatric experience and specializes in treating adults with ADHD. Uh, we, we, We talked about, well, we talked about his book, but we also talked about the diagnostic process and uh, a lot of the misinformation that's floating around about ADHD, uh, especially in adults. So it's a really good interview. It's very fascinating. Um, And if you have ADHD in your life or uh, know somebody who does, uh, or maybe exploring a diagnosis with one of your kids, for example, you should give this a listen because he has a lot of really good insight. And uh, I want to play the interview in its entirety uh, following a commercial break. So stay tuned. The Autism Dad is brought to you by Lackey Kid. Have you ever wondered where to find the best sensory tools for children with autism? Dealing with sensory issues can be very challenging for families like mine. Thankfully, there's Lackey Kid. Lackey Kid was founded by an autism dad to provide support, education, and other tools that can help children with anxiety, sleep, attention span, and sensory processing issues. They've helped thousands of autism families improve the quality of their lives. Visit lackeykid.com forward slash the dad and find out how you can receive a free sensory toy. This is a limited time offer while supplies last. So visit lackeykid.com forward slash theautism dad for more information. The Autism Dad is brought to you by Mightier. Mightier is an amazing program out of Harvard Medical and Boston Children's that utilizes video games in a wrist strap heart rate monitor to teach your kids to emotionally self regulate. So if you are an autism parent like I am, that means fewer meltdowns. Fewer meltdowns means reduced parental stress and improved quality of life for your entire family. I've been using it with my son for over a year. It's absolutely fantastic. The games are fun. They're engaging. He loves it. Uh, doesn't even realize that he's learning while he's doing it, and then he naturally applies it to the rest of his life. It's basically biofeedback for kids. So it does work for any child. Uh, but due to the nature of of autism, kids on the spectrum tend to have a more difficult time with emotional self-regulation. And so Mightier has a has a very profound impact on that. So if you want more information, including how to get a free thirty day trial, visit the autism forward slash mightier. That's the autism forward slash mightier. All right. And we're back uh, with Dr. John Cruz. He is the author of recognizing adult ADHD. What Donald Trump can teach us about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, well, first of all, thank you for, for taking the time to come on the show.
1: Yep, so I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you this morning. Well, I think before we get started on the book,
0: um, we should probably discuss what ADHD is uh, in general. So could you take a couple minutes and sort of talk to us about what ADHD is?
1: <sighs> and how many, how many more? <laughs> I, I a loaded question. A- I mean, we know it's a condition with a very strong genetic component. So, so it's a biologically based brain condition that primary impact seems to be on what we call executive functions of the brain. So these are the organizational systems that control how you pay attention, how you limit your impulses, how, you, how physically restless or active you are. Um, and we know that some of the systems that are strongly implicated in it involve dopamine brain systems. Um, but we don't have, again, a single gene marker. We don't have a single biological test that tells it. So right now it's still a sort of defined by dysfunction in these areas in life.
0: I I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to talk about the book, um, provocative, I think is, is a good word to use. Um, and I think it's really interesting because in, in this particular climate that we're in, um, I think everybody understands most people understand that something is not right. And, um, so, so I'm very interested in this. So would you mind, uh, kind of talking about, uh, what led to writing the book and, uh, we'll go from there.
1: So I've been working with adults with ADHD for 25 years now. And when I first got started, it was not accepted that adults could have ADHD. I think we'll be getting into that a little bit later. Um, But certainly over the last 15, 20 years, there's been much more awareness that adults can have it, that it can continue on from childhood. But I'm continually disappointed that I see people in their 30s, 40s, 20s, 70s who have been having... Undiagnosed ADD for you know, years, decades, and you know, even though awareness of it's more widespread, there's people come into my office for a new evaluation, and many of them didn't have a clue that they had ADHD. And invariably, learning that that's what contributed to them getting off track and lots of other problems through life, the knowledge of just the diagnosis has been helpful to them. As separate from whether we can find medication or behavioral or other strategies to treat them. So the statistics also show that clearly, you know, probably a few million adults in America still are undiagnosed with ADHD and that this is both a treatable condition and it's also a not a trivial condition. It's not just, ooh, there's a squirrel. I mean, this is a condition that leads to higher rates of not finishing high school, not finishing college, of dying early, of having car accidents, triple the rate of divorce. There's all sorts of realms in terms of health, in terms of relationships, in terms of career, that ADHD is a significant issue. So, So I had this idea, we need to increase awareness that this is real, that this is treatable, that this is out there. And then during the 2016, during the presidential campaign, several of my patients started remarking to me... As they were seeing Donald Trump there and you know gesturing, waving his hands, not finishing sentences, jumping all around, they saw their own behavior on the television screen. And they started saying, wait a minute, one, I look like that, don't I? So it gave them awareness as to how other people might see them. But it also sort of brought up the direct question, oh, my God, this guy running for president, he seems to have ADHD, doesn't he? And my initial assumption, you know, is that, yeah, this sort of looks like it, but I kept hearing this so often that I decided to sort of more systematically go through the diagnosis. And one of the things when I looked at it more closely, unlike all of other mental health diagnoses, whether it's a good definition or not, this one is defined purely in terms of observable behaviors I clearly there's other aspects to it than just observable behaviors, but the way the def- definition is written, there's nine different inattentive symptoms. There's nine different, um, um, I'm getting distracted myself, um, <laughs> hyperactive or restless mm-hmm. symptoms. And for an adult, you actually only need five symptoms total to co- to come up with the diagnosis. And, and the can't be attributable to other things, and they had to have it since childhood, and there's a few other factors. Um, But, and we can get into this as a side branch, I mean, there's ethical reasons, I mean, that I think we need to be wary if we say Trump has narcissism or some other things, because we need to know what he's feeling, what's motivating him, what's driving his actions, but the ADD definition is based on his actions. So I had all this going on in my head, and then one of my patients, and and although I'm in San Francisco and I have lots of liberal patients, this is actually a woman I've been seeing for 15 years who comes from the Central Valley, is not politically involved, is not particularly a left-wing person, but she said, and this is right after the Hillary Clinton, one of the debates between Clinton and Trump, where Hillary's sitting there, and again, whether or not you like the content of what she's saying, she's speaking in full sentences, She's speaking in full paragraphs. She's calm, she's direct, she's sitting in one place, whereas Trump is blurting out comments, interrupting her, interrupting himself, not finishing thoughts, gesturing all over the place. And when Trump, you know, made comments to provoke Hillary, um, she remained pretty calm and collected. When she made comments to provoke him, invariably they worked. He'd get agitated, and my best memory from those debates is when she commented on his temperament and he started yelling that he had the best temperament and repeated it almost a dozen times that. about how good his temperament was um you know a little more self awareness might have been good in that sense but so so this patient right after that debate she said you know the best thing that trump could do for me personally in her life would be if he came out as having adhd because in her mind that would tell the people in her life who sort of attributed her mistakes to being stupid or lazy or crazy or inconsistent or not really appreciating how much adhd impacted her life that having a famous person you know that everyone could see and relate to would help her and her life in terms of making adhd more understandable to the general population and the more I thought of it, the more that was an appealing idea. Even though I know he's a provocative figure, um, part of what I also thought about is that 20 years ago, when you know there might be a sports hero, I mean Terry Bradshaw, the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, has come out as having ADD years after his career ended. You know, 20, 30 years ago, maybe most people would have known who he is, but now there's no. Our, our media attention is so fragmented. There's no sports figure. There's no music star. There's nobody that everyone knows who they are and what they're like. Whereas Trump and maybe a few other world or national politicians are about the only characters where, you know, if you start describing, gesturing all over the place like Trump, people automatically know and understand what you're, you're talking about. So I'm using him because he's so. Much in everybody's consciousness and awareness that you know what I'm talking about when I, you know, single, single him out for for discussion about this. So so my book is sort of so my book is called um, Recognizing Adult ADHD: What Donald Trump Can Teach Us About Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it has it's sort of two very different books in one. The f- part of the book is to use Donald Trump to teach all of us about ADHD. And the second half is actually using ADHD to explain Donald Trump because if you don't grasp that part of him, and I'm not saying it's his only issue, but it's one we can objectively, clearly, definitively say is there, Um, if you don't grasp that, he doesn't make sense. I mean, there's all these people who talk on and on and on about his narcissism or whether he's a sociopath or whether he's psychotic, but a narcissist doesn't so consistently act in ways That diminish their own image. I mean, they don't, I mean, Trump a dozen times a day will say things that directly contradict what he said a minute ago or an hour ago or a day ago. Um, He rushes into all sorts of situations without preparation. I mean, if he were only a narcissist, he would plan ahead. He would try to make himself look as smart, as brave, as strong as possible. Again, not just acting impulsively. So I'd say you you actually need to understand ADHD to understand Trump. And the other thing as to why I actually argue it's more important than some of these other issues is that ADD or ADHD, and, and I'm using the terms interchangeably, and I can get mm-hmm. into that in a minute. ADHD affects how people process information. So everything that comes into his brain, or everything that doesn't get into his brain, is tied to the ADHD. Everything that spews force from his tweeting fingers or his mouth or anything else, is also influenced by his ADHD, whereas the narcissism, to the extent that it's there, is part of the content of his thoughts, but it's not as pervasively affecting his whole thought process.
0: That's really interesting um, because, you know, you hear a lot of criticism about people who are diagnosing him just from watching him as a narcissist or a sociopath or something along those lines. But with ADHD, that's exclusively observational. So you don't have to have FaceTime and be in, in um, the same
1: room. Yeah, I mean, I am arguing that that the the official, I mean, the American Psychiatric Association, some of the other ADHD associations, I haven't publicly, um, I haven't publicly commented specifically on my book, but I know their standard still is to say. The best way to diagnose someone is an in-person evaluation. But again, I would argue the information you'd get in two hours or four hours of sitting with him in your office, and and Donald Trump is maybe not unique, but there are very few individuals where we have hours and hours and hours of videographic evidence of what he says and what he does. So again, for him, I'd say we have more extensive data that's directly pertinent to deciding whether he fulfills these criteria or not. We can see him in a greater range of conditions. I mean, if, if you evaluate someone in your office, they're just interacting with you and they may be putting on a show or they may be intimidated to hear a doctor or they may be you know, having have a cold. Lots of individual factors for what's going on that day could influence what's going on. For this guy we have data from, you know, across dozens of continents, different times of day, interacting with all sorts of different people. So we have a much rich you know, it's not just more data, it's a much more varied, realistic portrayal of what's going on in this person's life. So I would argue, and again that the professional organizations have not officially agreed with me on this point yet, but I I think the facts are on my side on this, that we have much more pertinent data available about this guy up in terms of whether he fits the ADD, ADD diagnosis.
0: Um, and, and let me ask you a question because I've always been interested in this. If you've ever, if you hear him talk like at one of his rallies, he's very charismatic. He's, he's very, it gets a lot of attention. But if, then if you actually read word for word, the transcripts, it's nonsense. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, it, It's incoherent and it's scattered and it's, it's, Mm-hmm. And and so what you're saying is that is that is indicative of because a lot of people talk about mental decline and things like that, but ADHD would yep. also explain that. Yes.
1: Yeah. So one is that that many of our dementing syndromes also seem to primarily affect some of the executive functions, so how our brain organizes material, how we direct attention, how we regulate emotions. So there's actually a fair amount of overlap between. ADHD and some of the dementia syndromes. Um, why I don't think we can attribute all of what's going on to to dementia and, and that may be compounding or exacerbating what's going on, um, is that some of I mean, Trump himself has said that he hasn't changed at all since he was seven years old. I mean, we have the historical record of his, you know, other kids in his family weren't being sent to military school. He was sent at age 13 because he was such a, you know, problem, not following directions, not staying on track, not doing his homework, not getting things done. So we have evidence that, that these symptoms have been manifested throughout his both childhood and career. Um, And yes, to me, it does seem things have gotten Progressively more extreme over time, but at this stage, I'd say whether there's a dementia element and and some people, most specifically, have looked at choice of words and how he's just gotten more and more vague and empty over the years. I mean, there's certain indications that that could be part of a dementing process, but I would also say this is a guy who's been rewarded consistently for being vague and empty and and for sort of being charismatic and chaotic and scattered at this. So I would say it's hard to know whether we've trained him or rewarded him. And that's why we're seeing more behavior like this or, or whether indeed it is a dementing process on top of his age.
0: So you're talking more like a, like a learned behavior, like it works for him to.
1: Yeah, it works for him to, to not really say much, but to, you know, jump around from lots of push button phrases.
0: Have you got a lot of pushback? Uh, on the book? Or do people understand um, that diagnosing ADHD is different? There's a
1: lot. I mean, I mean one is the, the book doesn't have a very high profile yet. So I'd, I'd like more feedback from all directions, but there's certainly been pushback from lots of different directions. So one is, first and foremost, is people who are followers of Donald Trump seem to think that any mental health description is an attack mm-hmm. or something derogatory or dismissive of him. And I would argue that understanding he has ADHD is both more accurate and more empathetic than just saying he's a three-year-old baby or he's a moron, like you know, people from his own cabinet have <laughs> said. So there's also pushback from people on the left who think that this exonerates him, that if you say he has ADHD, that you're dismissing or allowing his bad behavior. And I would say an explanation is not the same as an excuse. Um, there's a lot of pushback actually from the ADHD community because many of them see Trump as a toxic divisive figure and they said, you know I don't want my condition lumped with him yeah. and then there's pushback from organized psychiatry who's there's something called the Goldwater rule that says um, psychiatrists aren't supposed to be giving public publicly sharing their assessments about public um, individuals without having had an in-person evaluation and without getting that person's consent. And again, I I think I can ethically not follow that because this is a condition where I argue we do not need an in-person evaluation, so we're not violating any consent. And, you know, as I lay out in my book, I'm very transparent about what the criteria are and how I think he robustly meets them. So I think it's, in my mind, doing a public service, although clearly some do not agree with that. Well, yeah,
0: some, some, I I think, I I think just the idea of mental illness, it's still so, um, there's still such a stigma attached, attached to it. And, and and, in in my view, not as a professional, but I mean, I, Two of my three kids have ADHD. Um, I mean it's it's not something that would disqualify somebody from filling a position like that, but if you don't if you don't recognize, acknowledge, and and treat the condition, then it can have an adverse effect on your ability to perform uh,
1: in yes, in that yes. role. And we're seeing that every yeah. I mean, this is a guy who, from all accounts, and there have been several from different people. You know, even the Daily. Security briefing, you know, the most important security crises the president should be tracking. They've made it shorter and shorter. They've made more pictures and graphs rather than just descriptions, and he still doesn't read it or pay attention to it. That could have disastrous consequences. I mean, maybe it's already had disastrous consequences. We don't even know. But that I'd say is a direct situation where his ADHD is having a role and a not a good one. Or a month ago when he he told us. You know, I just launched missiles at or ordered missiles to be launched at Iran. And then a half hour later I figured out that could kill people, so I ordered them to call off the attack. A lot of
0: impulsivity.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean that In a very dangerous way. That I'd say is yeah, is is but you know, that could have been potentially hugely dangerous. Some would even argue that you know telling us about it the way he did is part of what's allowed. You know, people to be, you know, think that he isn't as big and tough as he says he is and that they can get away with a lot more. So there's, you know, a double edged sword. It's, that's been harmful in two different ways there. And knowing he's both impulsive, so you can't really trust what he's going to say, and two, that he's not very likely to follow up on things that he does say or do.
0: Very, very interesting.
1: Um, I, yeah, but I, I, I would, agree. So, so getting back to the stigma mm-hmm. issue, Everything we know about stigma is that part of the ways we diminish stigma is by being clear and explicit as to what a condition is and what it isn't. And and often using people who are familiar or in the public figure are one of the most um, potent ways both to make it personal and real on an individual level and to make it clear you know, what are what are the limitations imposed by this condition or what are the, what are the strengths and benefits imposed by this condition?
0: That's, that's one of the approaches, the main approach that I've um, utilized over the years. My focus has always been more on the autism side of things uh, and, in helping people to, to, to see um, not, not a clinical Uh approach to it, but, but a, but a real life, like what it looks like, to my family. And it doesn't mean it's going to look the same way to somebody else's family, but it, but it gives them a little bit of insight, which then yep. helps them, uh, you know, develop some more empathy and, uh, maybe, maybe frame things a little bit differently so they can apply it in a positive way, uh, in their own life. And, and and it's been, you know, arguably it's been a very successful approach. Uh, and, and I, and I understand, uh, I mean, Donald Trump is a, is a, is a central figure in the world right now and and we can use him as a teaching tool i guess really
1: yeah as i said you know this is a teachable moment and whatever else you think about what's going on with this presidency it's sort of in my mind almost criminal not to make good use of this when it's there
0: and so for the people who are who who would read the title and just think oh my gosh they're just bashing the president this isn't a, this isn't meant to be a negative um attack on him it's about recognizing what we're all seeing and, and, and maybe identifying what may be contributing to that behavior rather than assigning blame or, or anything like that.
1: Um, Yeah. So, so when you, one of the articles I wrote about this appeared on uh, a doctor's website where I thought there'd be more sophisticated, you know, feedback and, and commentary. Most of the early comments were from clearly Republican, right, wing psychiatrists and other doctors, and several of them said, the only reason anyone would make a diagnosis is to attack someone. And I thought, one, I can't believe a doctor is saying this, and two is that no, the very purpose of a diagnosis is to aid first in understanding what's really going on, two, to give us some idea of what's likely, you know, prediction, some generalizations of how this is likely to unfold. And three, so we know what's as likely to be an effective treatment. Because if you can't accurately identify what you're dealing with, you're not going to be able to, again, understand it, deal with it, treat it, at all.
0: All right. Uh, And the book is out now, right? And can be found on, you said, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, So
1: Yep. And I think independent bookstores can order it, but there's very, very few that are stocking it. Okay, exactly. I'll
0: make sure to put all the and, links and in the description to this episode so that people can can go check that out for themselves. Um, Good. The
1: audio book is going to be out sometime in the next week Ooh, or two. So that's, that's cool. Even better because many ADD people don't like reading. The I,
0: whole I I like book. the audio books. I've been more into that lately, uh, so that's that's really cool. I'll have to check that out. Um, one of the other things that you focus on is sort of debunking some of the common myths associated, uh, with ADHD. Yep. And so I was wondering if you could kind of go into that a little bit, because I, I know th- there is a lot of, uh, misinformation and misunderstandings, uh, associated with, with ADHD, because it's, it's sort of like an invisible condition. You know, when, when, when people can't see it, they, yeah. they just don't believe that it's there. Uh, in, in my kids, all three of my kids are autistic and two of the three, uh, have ADHD and my oldest is also schizophrenic. And, uh, I I've said many times that I, you know, autism is tough and I don't want to take that away from anybody, uh, because I live it every day, but the ADHD is, is really challenging at times. And, and I guess I never would have thought I would have experienced it that way. I, I would have assumed autism would have been a more difficult thing for us to deal with. So, if you don't mind, could you take a couple of minutes and, and talk about some of those uh, misconceptions or myths, and then uh, help us to better understand uh, what the facts are, so that so that we can destigmatize um, or help to destigmatize ADHD and, and get accurate, scientifically sound, factual based information out to the listeners.
1: I mean one of the myths and, and this may be less pertinent for your your site it's, is that ADHD only affects children. I mean again when I was in training that was the dogma and I went to you know good training programs but in four years of psychiatry residency they talked a lot about ADHD existing in children and absolutely no mention that it could occur in adults and the very why I got involved in ADHD 25 years ago was that the very first patient who was referred to me, and he was a 45-year-old guy. um, If he had been an eight-year-old boy, no one would have questioned that he had ADHD. He would walk around talking to himself. He was always late to appointments. He had had more than 100 jobs by the age of 45 because he didn't hold any of them more than six weeks. And yet, his previous therapist Had made no progress with him, so had referred him specifically to the university hospital to evaluate. Could this guy have ADHD? And they did three days of neuropsychological testing, and they came back with, "This certainly looks like ADHD, but that doesn't exist in adults." So we don't know what he has. So, again, that was twenty-five years ago, and and even at that time, there were certainly some specialists, some people sort of ahead of the curve who were aware that it was existing in adults. But now there's much more broad acceptance that, you know, maybe a third of kids who have it outgrow most of it by the end of childhood. Another third, though, don't seem to get any better at all. And the middle third might get somewhat better, but still have substantial ADD symptoms. Um, so that's one of the myths. All right. should. Nothing more. Or do you have? Yeah, well, well I, myths, I, yeah. I had
0: a question. Um, sure. I, I I have. There are adults in my life uh, who who are adults with ADHD, and in 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 my experience, um, most of the dot like even even getting treatment for it, medication for it, uh, as mm-hmm. an adult is very very difficult, because I I, I guess maybe they assume that you're abusing the medication or, um, or, or they just don't believe that adult ADHD exists and like, it just magically disappears, uh, when, when they turn 18, um, what would cause somebody to a outgrow it versus somebody who would carry that on into adulthood?
1: So that's a really interesting question. And one that, what I say will be more speculation because we don't have good, good data. There have been some brain studies that did suggest there are certain markers that may predict which children may outgrow it completely. But those are still sort of preliminary and not extensively replicated. But it may be that that they're, you know, from the beginning, different actual subsets of ADHD. So that's one aspect a second aspect and this really turns things completely on its head lots of parents not just of you know not just adults fearing or avoiding treatment lots of parents avoid treatment particularly with stimulants of their children because they're afraid stimulants are going to rot their brain or make them horrible you know cause damage to their brain and we have more than 2 dozen studies that have been published looking at different brain imaging approaches comparing Kids with ADHD on stimulants versus kids on ADHD or kids with ADHD who didn't have any stimulants. And by the end of childhood, it's the group that took the medications, the stimulant medications, who have brains that look more normal. Really? So that's saying you might actually be sentencing your kid to, you know, a lifetime of more problems if you don't. Use stimulant medication. I mean, that, I'm going a little beyond what the data say, but I'd say they very strongly suggest what I just concluded there. All right. Um. um
0: yeah, that that answered my question uh, b- because I guess it's it's frustrating because I, I see a lot of um there can be a lot of disorganization as an adult that that can be very disruptive in in their own life and the lives of the people that they. Uh, yeah,
1: yep. absolutely. So, so, those are other aspects of what you were asking. So, a couple of reasons why adults with ADHD don't get treatment I mean, is one is intention. This is a, a condition that impairs intent, attention, and that includes attention to your own behaviors. So, objectively, people with ADHD are not very good at monitoring themselves, not particularly good at knowing. You know, when they're disrupting others, so so often the people around them are more impacted by the ADHD themselves, it seems. Um, So that's one contributing factor is, is again, they may be less aware that there's something. A second factor about why they're not, again, is, you know, fears of what medication may do to me. Um, Three is sort of the dismissal that ADHD is just this trivial oh there goes a squirrel you know it's just distractibility and it's not you know affecting all these attention direction control of impulses hyperactivity other dimensions of thinking and processing information that it's sort of trivial and so and i've had people who came in in their 40s and said yeah ha ha ha, ha friends joke for years i have ADHD issues and they didn't really, you know, really to them, it was sort of a joke and maybe even to their friends, it was a joke until we could sit down and point out, you know, this isn't just showing up 10 minutes late every time you hang out with your friends. This is also why, you know, you blurted things out and you got fired from the last three jobs and this is why your two marriages ended in divorce and this is why you broken your leg twice when skiing because you weren't paying attention to the trees or, you know, things like this, that this is something that's impacting lots of different dimensions of their life. And they didn't have awareness that ADHD could be manifesting in all these different ways.
0: So then, so then when people kind of, they look at ADHD and it's like, oh, he just has ADHD or he just can't pay attention or, you know, whatever, they sort of downplay it. I think a lot of times, uh, ADHD itself isn't, um, harmful necessarily to the body uh like like a degenerative condition or something like that but but the the impact that it
1: has is like the
0: danger is more secondary right
1: it's secondary but it's i mean i mean one one simple one is motor vehicle accidents are about somewhere between two to three times more frequent serious ones not just fender benders but you know, serious, including up to lethal accidents are two to three times more likely if you have ADHD.
0: Just because you, you
1: and, lack and, of attention. And overall, yeah, and overall mortality is something, you know, almost a decade shorter for people with ADHD. A lot of it seems to do to a variety of different types of accidents or, you know, situations they get into. But also ADHD is a association at least for uh, several other unhealthy risk factors so strangely I mean it, it is actually correlated now with higher rates of obesity and that's probably due to poor choices among food being made um it's certainly correlated with poor sleep habits and sleep bad sleep is connected with a bunch of other health concerns um, lower rates of exercise and more rates of, of not just sitting there still, but sitting there playing video games or other things so that, and, and that's another you know factor that leads into a variety of health problems.
0: I guess, I guess what I was saying, just so that, that I'm clear and I didn't misrepresent what I was trying to say, uh, when I deal with a lot of parents who have kids that are newly diagnosed with autism, a lot of times they look at it as sort of like a death sentence. Like, like it's the absolute end of the world. Um, mm-hmm. And, and with ADHD, I, I think people maybe dismiss it because they don't see it having, um, it's yeah, not like a, a cancer a or a, yeah, but, well, but it, but it directly impacts a person's ability to function and yeah. that, that disruption and ability to function can lead to car accidents or uh disruption in career or uh family or personal yeah. life and things like that. So it isn't that it's not harmful. It, no, it,
1: it's not, this is not trivial, no.
0: Okay. That's uh, that's something I think we really need to help people understand. Um, yep,
1: and and it, it, you also made me think about a few other things. I mean, okay. one is like autism, ADHD does occur on a spectrum. So you know, there are people who have smaller amounts of it and people who have more extreme amounts. So that that adds to sort of confusion about it. Two other things that add to confusion about it. You know, something like schizophrenia is characterized by having hallucinations and symptoms that people without schizophrenia don't ever have. What's difficult about ADHD is all of the symptoms, you know, whether it's poor time management, poor focus, impulsively saying something, all of those are things that almost all of us do, at least occasionally. So the diagnosis doesn't have what's the word is pathognomonic, which means a a signal characteristic trait that means, aha, this person has it. It's more a collection of traits that they are displaying much, much more frequently and consistently than, than other people. Um, and two, there's an inconsistency. So it's not that people with ADHD can't pay attention at all. Um, If something's really interesting to them, then they're probably, you know, if it's a good video game, if it's, they really like World War II movies, then they might sit through, you know, a whole day long showing of World War II movies. But it's, if it's not interesting to them, then it's going to be really hard for them to sit down and do whatever task, even if it's a really important one. But that, that inconsistency and not understanding that the person's motivation does actually feed into ADHD, but not in a voluntary way. It's not like they're deciding I'm interested in this and therefore I can attend to this. Um,
0: So it's their ability to focus on the things that don't necessarily capture their attention.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I've I'm the parent of 16 year old twins and I've, Earlier on in their school years, I was on several school trips chaperoning them, and I was so dismayed that some of the teachers I thought were wise and experienced at the end of one of the school trips, the woman, and the teacher said, you know, Joey, you know, he seems to have something like ADHD, but in math class, he's completely attentive and focused and on track, so it couldn't be ADHD. And that conclusion is actually almost exactly wrong. It's, you know... Ability to focus on one isolated area that that kid's really interested in is actually indicative of ADHD. When he's scattered and you know walking around, not sitting, not turning in homework, and all the other classes. Uh, so part of what makes it hard to diagnose is you know people see oh, you know you can focus in math. Well, why can't you just apply yourself and focus in English and spelling and gym class and the 17 other activities during the day.
0: So that would sort of go along with like, like, like a kid with ADHD who maybe can compensate at school and do okay at school will come home and demonstrate completely different behavior or abilities. Uh,
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You hear a lot about that. Yeah. So some, and, and that's an, so part of it is, you know, might be what's interesting to them or motivating, but a big chunk there. Is the external structure Mm -hmm. that you know if you know each hour you only have to be able to focus on this or stay on in this classroom this long, that may be doable. But when you get home and you have three different things to do homework on, and you have an interesting show you wanted to watch or a video game you wanna play, and you might have a chore before dinner, and unless someone's organizing all that time for you, it's like an overwhelming number of choices, options, and usually, oh, I'll do what is most fun first. And then you, you know, you've played your video game, but homework isn't done, or the chores aren't done, or none of the other things are. So, so the changes in structure are also important at a at a different level. So often, I often see kids who are smart enough. That they didn't do much homework, but they were bright enough to get through high school, get through, get into a good college. And when they're suddenly in college, and you know, mom isn't in the kitchen saying you have to do this homework now, or Mm -hmm. the teachers aren't saying you know you have to hand this in now, and we want to see your preliminary work. That there's no structure to keep the student on track. That's a time often people who haven't presented earlier show up with their ADHD another point is you know for some people even college has enough structure to keep them on track but when they graduate you know the first time they're in a job you know they're bright they've done well and well enough in school but you know now the boss isn't holding their hand and saying you know these 3 hours you're to work on this project and this hour you're supposed to be doing these reports and this hour you have to send off all these emails so so it's the lack of structure when they enter the business world. And then the, the last time that I see lack of structure leading to people coming in for a first ADHD evaluation is actually retirement, which sounds bizarre. But there are some people, I mean, particularly those who are retiring, grew up in an era where even childhood ADHD wasn't attended too much or wasn't in our consciousness. So they've lived most of their lives you know, you know, with the cohort that wasn't that accustomed to ADHD. But again, the structure of school might have been enough. The structure of a job might have even been enough to help them be on track. But then retirement, it's like, oh, my God, nobody's teach- telling me I don't have anything to do each day. I don't have any direction. I don't have any guidance. I don't have any you know, thing to keep me on track. I'm just I don't know what to do with myself. So I've, I've seen a fair number of people in there. 70s even, who had never previously been diagnosed with ADHD, but when we looked at the problems they were facing suddenly in retirement, we could see antecedents in all of their work life, school life, other areas, but they had just been able to manage or they found a, either a job that was interesting enough or a job that had an optimal amount of structure for them, that it worked for them, again, until this age of retirement.
0: So, so let me ask you, um, as it relates to my audience is uh, with the autism community specifically, uh, ADHD seems to be a pretty common comorbid, uh, diagnosis that goes along with autism. Is there, are there similarities between the two or is is there a known reason why it's common to have Mm -hmm. both at the same time?
1: So I'll start out with with sort of just agreeing and confirming that yes, you know the the percentage of kids with autism who also have ADHD is much higher than the the general you know population out there, and the percentage of kids with ADHD who have autism is also higher than the than the background rate we'd see. Um, I'd say one thing, and and to steer clear of sort of controversial areas are areas where we don't have, I mean, we don't have a specific gene for ADHD. We don't have a gene for autism. Um, with ADHD and many of our other mental health conditions, it seems that there's a numbers of many, many, many different genes, all of which are contributing a little bit. And many of these genes that are contributors seem to be moderately non, you know, it's not specifically an ADHD gene. It's a gene that's elevated in bipolar disorder and in ADHD and in autism. Mm -hmm. So that part of this genetic load of different versions of different genetic genes may be contributing to propensity for both situations together. Um, A second reason, one is that there's, I'd say, still... I mean, one is that there's overlap among some of the symptoms, and two, there's overlap among some of the, I'd say the ability of some of the people doing evaluations to separate out what's ADHD and what's autism, and I'd say maybe this is more among what I see among young adults, and particularly at the milder end of the autism spectrum, um... So I'd I'd certainly, so both conditions can affect social functioning in different ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the studies would suggest that kids with ADHD really understand and grasp social rules. It's that they are inattentive to applying them. So they look socially inept or they, you know, run into people or they blurt things out, whereas on the autism spectrum, our, our thinking and part of the definition itself is actually there's more impairment and sort of grasping some of these social dimensions and constructs and ways people get along. And, and certainly at the you know most extreme end of the autism spectrum where even simple physiologic things like, you know, baby's eyes usually follow people's faces and particularly look at their eyes and the severe end of the spectrum of autism. Even these simple sort of physiologic responses that are the core of social functioning aren't aren't operating in a normal way. Um, so I, what I was getting at, so social functioning can be impaired in both situations and people who aren't careful diagnostically can often say, oh, well, that person's having social difficulties. That must all be autism spectrum issues rather than ADHD. So and for whatever reason i'd say and, and maybe this is a good effect of dealing more effectively with stigma i'd say right now what i see among young adults there's actually more popularity or favorability to be um neuroatypical which is connected with you know the the autism diagnosis mm-hmm. than than to be told you have ADHD so i've seen Both patients and certain groups of therapists sort of gravitate, you know, let's give them the the label that they like better, even though I've seen situations where I, I don't think it was an accurate fit. And part of why where that becomes meaningful then is, you know, they may be missing out on treatments that, you know, if there's ADHD, stimulant medications don't just help with the cognitive functioning and staying on track and attentiveness, measurably they can help with the emotional volatility. But if your emotional volatility is, I mean, if you really have an autism issue and, and there's not really significant ADD there stimulants, as far as I've seen, you know, are likely to exacerbate or worsen emotional volatility, not help it. All right. So, um,
0: one last question. Uh, and sure. it's just because I know a lot of people, uh, people are going through diagnostic processes with their kids, what, what should parents look for? um, I I guess, what should they be at? What point should a parent be concerned and have their child evaluated?
1: Yeah. To me, the hallmarks are sort of functional and, you know, certainly in the early grades, we're often not giving ABC grades, but, Unless the parent has a fair amount of experience as to what other kids are doing at certain ages and what's normal behavior, it's often hard to know, know, is one temper tantrum a month normal or okay, or is this excessive, or is it so? I'd say most of the valuable feedback comes from teachers, comes from group leaders of other activities who can give feedback, you know, your kid isn't fitting in in the same way or your kid isn't learning in the same way or your kid isn't connecting to other kids in the same way. And parents certainly can be aware of that and pick up on that and and learn about that. But it's often hard, you know, to know from, I'd say if you're worried, then it's, I would start, I mean, if there's anything that's worrying you, I would start with the kid's, pediatrician and talking about what you're seeing and seeing one, if they're seeing it themselves in their office, because again, they have hundreds and hundreds of kids that they know how many kids act in the exchange in a doctor's office and, and not that on a given bad day, someone may act outside of those norms, but they're in a better position to know what's an unusual behavior and what's particularly unusual or inappropriate for a given age. All right. Um, um, so, so I'd say the bottom line though is if you're concerned and I, I wouldn't ignore that, I would sort of seek out advice. And also if it seems your concerns are being dismissed, it's worth getting at least a second opinion from someone else. Yeah, and that's very the good podcasts advice. And, and and what you provide and others provide, I think is a wonderful resource because it gives sort of a flavor of these are the type of areas, you know, our kids, Ran into problems in, and this is what we were seeing at this age, which you know five years later looked like this type of problem. So I think that's, that's a tremendous resource for people to to make good use of to see and, and i mean but it's 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 a tricky business because again, any kid can have a bad meltdown, and particularly the the parents that are on the more anxious end of their spectrum you know can over interpret or over worry about. One particular incident. So, you know, part of what's important with both ADHD and autism, this is not just one incident or one bad day or one miscommunication. This is an extensive pattern of behaviors that are atypical for the person's age and leading them into problems and dysfunction.
0: Excellent. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, I know you're very busy, and and this is I, this is just really important information. Uh, to get out there and October is ADHD awareness month. Uh, So I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, Was there anything else that you wanted to add?
1: No, I I think this was an enjoyable talk and I think you're doing a great service and I'm glad to bring in the ADHD spectrum into part of greater awareness for people.
0: I just wanted to take a a quick minute and thank Dr. Cruz for coming onto the show and talking to us about his book and uh, about ADHD in general. Um, his book, Recognizing Adult ADHD, What Donald Trump Can Teach Us About Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. I'll have links in the description below. I'll also link you to his social media as well as his website. So, again, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Cruz. Thank you for coming on. Um, as always, you guys can find me at TheAutismDad.com. Uh, all my social media links are in the top right of the screen, uh, mostly on Twitter, so I, I don't really pay attention to anything else. So if you if you hit me up anywhere else, I'm not really focused on that. So I'm not ignoring you. I just don't see it. Uh, you can also send me an email through my blog. Um, uh, lastly, make sure that you subscribe uh, to this podcast. So you're updated every week when new episodes come out, you can find me on any major uh, podcasting app that's out there. Just do a search for the autism to head and then hit subscribe. I really appreciate it guys. I uh, hope you have a great weekend and I will see you next week. Thanks. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills, such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross trains, motor movement, visual auditory and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games, Strengthened connections, allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com. That's K-I-N-U-U dot com. And be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDATA at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.